be my prayer that the Lord will enable me to preach this message and apply it to our hearts so we all leave here singing that song. Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming to Thee. All right, if you would open your Bibles with me to Second Chronicles chapter 2. I've titled the message this morning, Who is Able to Build Him a House? Now Solomon had determined to build a temple to the Lord. His father David wanted to build it, but the Lord told David, no. He said, I've selected your son Solomon to build me a house. And now the time has come. Solomon is now king, and it's come time for him to build that temple. And Solomon's not just going about this thing half-caught. He's, he's entered this thing carefully, prayerfully. And I can tell he's thought about it because he asked a very good question in verse 5, Second Chronicles chapter 2. And the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods, but who is able to build him a house? Seeing the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him. Now Solomon asked a really good question. How can I build a house that's glorious enough, that's big enough for the Lord? The heavens can't contain God. How am I going to build a house to contain him? Well, you're not. Solomon, you can't do it. And you know, I, that made me think about the buildings where we worship. You know, we, we try as best we can to make them as nice and comfortable as we can. But we're never going to make them big enough and grand enough to contain the God of glory, are we? We're never going to make anything worthy of his glory. Solomon's temple was built by 150,000 laborers. They had 3,600 supervisors. The temple was 2,700 square feet. In today's dollars, that temple would cost between three and six billion dollars to build. Just to give you a point of reference, the, the new Freedom Tower in New York City cost $3.9 billion to build. Solomon's temple was in that range, dollar-wise. And after as large as that was, as expensive as it was to build, Solomon's temple still wasn't able to contain the glory of God, or to show us the true glory of God. I mean, you know that building was something else, wasn't it? And it still wasn't glorious enough for God. Now here's an example of how gracious and how condescending our God is. Even though Solomon's temple was not worthy of God's glory, God still said, I'm going to meet with my people there. I'm allow my people to worship me there. I'm going to reveal myself to my people there. I'm going to hear the prayer of my people there. And when I hear, I'll forgive. Now, everything in that temple. Here, here's why God heard the prayers of his people there. Here's why God was uh, allowed himself to be worshipped there. It's because everything in that temple was a picture of Christ. It wasn't just a, a building. It was all pictures of Christ. Now, the temple had the pictures of Christ, but it couldn't contain all the glory of God, could it? But God in his power did something that Solomon could not do with that enormous building. God made a building. 
God made a tabernacle that was worthy of God's glory. And you know what that building was? It was the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became flesh and tabernacled among us. Solomon's temple could never contain the glory of God. But by his power, Almighty God made all of his glory to be contained in one man. That temple could not contain the glory of God. A man walked in it. All the glory of God was in that man. In one man. God made everything that he is to dwell in the body of one man. The Lord Jesus Christ. That temple could not contain God any more than the heavens could contain God. But God made the, the everything that he is to be contained in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a miracle. It's a miracle. I know that's so this because this is what scripture says. Colossians 1 verse 19. It pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell. All the fullness of God. It pleased him to make all that fullness dwell in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> the fullness of God's wisdom is found in Christ. The fullness of his grace. The fullness of his mercy. The fullness of his love. The fullness of his salvation. The fullness of his justice. The fullness of his righteousness. The fullness of his holiness. It was all in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one man. The best Solomon could do with his temple is make it contain pictures of Christ. Pictures of how God's going to save his people. All of that was actually in the body of Christ. One man came and accomplished all of that. Now I'm going to give you a few examples of the things that Solomon put in his temple so we see how they're pictures of Christ. And I hope when we see this, this is, this is my goal, my prayer, that when we see these things, we see that God has put everything that sinners like you and me need in one place. He's put them all in Christ so that we'll run to him. So that we'll run to him. Now, if you read the following chapters, if you want to this afternoon, you can do that. But um, this is what you'll find Solomon put in the temple. The first thing I noticed was Solomon covered almost everything with gold. I mean, can you imagine going into this building and seeing the walls and some of the floors covered with gold? They're covered with gold. And that building still wasn't worthy of God's glory. Everything's covered with gold. I'll tell you why he covered everything with gold. Because gold is a picture of the pure deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The man Jesus of Nazareth is God. He is God. And that gives him, since he's God, that's why he has the power to save, the righteousness to save, the holiness to save, the right to save, because he's God. Now that brings such comfort to the hearts of God's people. That's just not some controversial doctrine. You know, I know some people don't believe that. They think Jesus was just a, a prophet or just even a very special prophet. They don't think he's God. And I don't point that out. Just this is a doctrinal, you know, difference between those people who don't know no better. This brings such comfort to the hearts of God's people 
If the Lord Jesus Christ is God, he cannot fail to save everybody he came to save. And since he's God, he did save everybody he came to save, and he can never lose one that he intended to save. Not one, because he's God. Brethren, we are secure in Christ because he's God. This is a savior we can trust. He's God. And gold also pictures the preciousness of Christ. If we'll get a hold of that, we'll get a whole lot better sense of the glory of the gospel. This thing is not just a forensic thing where justice was satisfied, just as, you know, some paper shuffled and stamped. The preciousness of the gospel is the preciousness of Christ. He's the only righteous man to ever live. He's the only one who ever obeyed God perfectly. Now that makes him precious. You know, something that's one of a kind. It's precious, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ is one of a kind and he's precious. He's so precious that his blood is able to pay the redemption price for a number no man can number. To wash them white as snow. Now I understand everybody doesn't see that. But Peter said unto you therefore which believe. Oh he's precious. And the word is actually preciousness. Unto you therefore which believe. The Lord Jesus Christ is preciousness itself. Everything in him and everything about him is precious. Isn't it precious that someone like him could love someone like us? Isn't that precious? Isn't it precious that someone as glorious as he is would sacrifice himself for somebody as low down as we are? Isn't that precious? It's precious that he would condescend to meet with us and enable us to worship. I mean, here we are, this whole wide world today, all around this country, people are meeting together in buildings and saying they've met together to worship and saying they're a church and saying they're preaching about Jesus. And I mean, all those people. And then just think about believers. How many believers right this very moment are meeting together doing what we're doing right now, preaching the gospel? Our Savior is condescended where there's just two or three to meet together with him. He's condescended to be with us this morning. Enable us to worship Him. Enable us to hear from Him. Isn't that precious? It's precious. Our Savior, who's God of the universe, who rules everything that's happening in the universe all at one time, is never too busy to come to His people and comfort them. He's never too busy to hear the cries of His poor people. And to comfort thee with his presence. It's no wonder. He is preciousness to everybody that believes him. That's what Solomon's gold represented. Then Solomon made two cherubim that he put in the Holy of Holies. I don't know what he made them of. They were made out of wood or made out of something. But he overlaid them with gold. And these were big statues, or if you will. Each wing of those cherubim 
was over nine feet long. They stood wingtip to wingtip, spread out over 36 feet, tip to tip, each touched the, the opposite ends of the Holy of Holies. And now these cherubim, they're angels. And get out of your head. I know we all think of you. They're not cute little chubby children that, that's got wings on them. These cherubim, if we would see them, they're frightening beings. They're mighty, powerful beings. The servants of God. It was the cherubim that God gave that sword which turned every which way to guard the tree of life that Adam not come back to it. That's cherubim. They're carrying out the judicial power, the judicial decree of God. But cherubim's also pictures of the power of God, specifically the sacrifice of Christ. Remember when Moses made the mercy seat. The mercy seat covered the, the Ark of the Covenant and it was made of pure gold. It was a solid slab of gold and they hammered out these cherubim on either end of the, of the mercy seat and their wings covered the, the mercy seat. And in the shadow of those wings on the mercy seat, that's where the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat every year on the day of atonement. And God said, between those wings of the cherubim, I'm going to dwell there. The Shekinah glory of God was under the wings of those cherubim where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. And God said, that's where I'll meet with men, under the wings of those cherubim. And when Solomon was done with his building, he's got those in the Holy of Holies, those two giant cherubim with their wings all stretched out, that's where he put the Ark of the Covenant, underneath the wings of those cherubim. Now all of that, I mean, it's a pretty spectacular sight if we saw it. But that's given to us as a picture of something a whole lot more glorious than that. This is God giving us a picture. This is how the holy God will meet with sinful men and women. He'll meet with them at the mercy seat. In Christ, our mercy seat. In Christ, our propitiation. Now, God will meet with men in peace. He will. But he'll only meet with men in peace where the blood has been shed and the blood has been sprinkled, where the blood has been applied. And that's why David said, David understood this. He said, I'm going to hide under the shadow of thy wing. Now, when I was a, just a, a little fella, and I thought, well, that's talking about uh, like those chicks, you know, that hide under the, the shadow of their mother's wing to keep them safe from the hawk flying above or something. But David means it's something a whole lot more special than that. He's talking about hiding under the shadow of the wings of the cherubim over the mercy seat. In that shadow where the blood of the sacrifice has been sprinkled, David said, that's where I'm going to hide. That's where I'm going to hide. This is what it's telling us. If you hide in Christ, if you're trusting Christ alone, your soul is eternally secure. A whole lot more secure than a chick hiding under the, the wings of a hen, wouldn't you say? Everyone who trusts in Christ is completely safe. Completely safe from all harm. I know there's things that will harm our bodies and hurt our bodies, sickness and disease and all these things. But a believer has nothing to fear. When you uh, go home this afternoon, there is an outstanding article in the back of the bulletin for 
Brother Brady wrote it. And he tells us in that article, don't fear. And you'll notice in that article, when you, I want you to read that article carefully. He never said, well, don't fear just because there's nothing to fear. He tells us don't fear because of who God is. Don't fear because of what God said. Don't fear because of what God promised. If you're trusting in Christ, you've got nothing to fear because of what God said. Because of what God promised. And you know why if you're in Christ, you've got nothing to fear. It's because of the blood of Christ that he shed as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. That blood, his suffering, his death satisfied God's justice for all the sin of all of his people. God will never, ever punish your sin if Christ died for you. Now I know he'll correct us and he'll teach us, but he'll never punish you. Never. You don't ever have to fear standing before the judgment seat of Christ if you're trusting Christ. Because he knows better than anybody, his blood puts your sin away. Solomon made those, those great cherubim. He put that Ark of the Covenant under the, under the, their wings. But you know, a person could hide under the shadow of those wings. They could lay hold of that mercy seat and, and they could try to, to, to uh, escape judgment and justice. But they could still take you from there. Solomon did. There's a man hiding in there. Solomon said, time of justice has come. Time mercy's over. And he told him, you take him off that, that altar. And you take him out there and, and kill him. A person could hide under those physical wings. Be slain. If you're hiding in Christ, you can never die. Nobody can pluck you out of his hand. And you can't jump out. You're safe in him. Then Solomon made a veil to hang between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. And that veil was made up of many colors. It was a beautiful tapestry. Skillfully made. And it had several colors in it. And all those colors picture Christ. The veil was made of, of white linen. Which is a picture of the holiness of Christ. His purity. And get a hold of this now. His holiness is the holiness of his people. Everybody knows Christ is holy. But if you're in Christ, you're as holy as he is. Because he's your holiness. That veil had purple stitching in it. Which is a picture of Christ our king. The one that we submit to. The one we submit under his rule. Purple is the color of kings. Now if the king commands you to be saved. If the king demands you be showed mercy. You're going to be saved and you're going to receive mercy because the king commands it. Then purple is also a combination. It's a combination of blue and red. Blue, the color of heaven. Red, the color of earth. That's Christ, the God-man. The man who came from heaven. Christ, our Savior, is God. So he's holy. He's, he can satisfy God's holiness because he is God. But our Savior is also a man. So he can be our representative. So he can obey the, law, obey the law as our representative as the second Adam. He's a man so he can be our substitute and die for the sin of, of his people. Now all the miracle of salvation can only be accomplished by the God-man. The God-man has to come and obey the law for his people. And it's the God-man 
who must die for the sin of his people. See, the sin of the first Adam separated all of his race, every human being, separated us from God so that we cannot come back into God's presence. We can't do it. We're dead. We're dead in sin. God will never accept us in our sin. But Christ came. And by his obedience and by his death, he brings all of his race, all those people that the Father gave him to save, he brings back to God, accepted. Now that's what this veil represents. I can show you that. Look over Hebrews chapter 10. You all know the story of what happened when our Savior died. They didn't take his life from him. He gave up the ghost. And when Christ gave up the ghost, you know what happened? That veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Showing us that the way to God is now wide open. Because of the death of Christ, the way to God is now wide open. As long as you come to God in Christ alone, the way to God is wide open for any sinner who will come in Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's consecrated. He's opened this way for us through the veil, which is to say his flesh. That veil that hung and separated the holy place from the holy of holies is a picture of the body, the flesh of Christ. Now, before Christ died, before he gave up the ghost, only the high priest could come into the holy of holies. And he could only come in one day a year, couldn't he? On the day of atonement, he could come with blood, but only one day a year. But normal peons like you and me, we could never have come into the Holy of Holies. But once Christ died, and that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, anybody could come. Anybody could see. Anybody could. Notice it wasn't torn from left to right. It was torn from top to bottom. Tall sinners and short sinners. Fat sinners and skinny sinners. Sinners who got to crawl. Sinners who can walk. Any sinner can come into the presence of God through the sacrifice the body that was sacrificed, the body of Christ. And we can come, the writer here says, boldly. Well, that high priest didn't come into the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement. He didn't come boldly. He came carefully. They put bells on the bottom of his robe so they could tell if he's, if he's is he still alive? We hear the bells ringing. He's still alive. He's still moving around. He came carefully. He brought that censer in. He brought the blood. He sprinkled the blood. He was so careful to do everything just right. So God didn't smite him. I mean, he was careful. A believer can come into the very presence of the thrice holy God, confident, boldly, knowing we'll be accepted as long as we come in Christ alone. Now, I can't come confidently if I say, oh, you know, Lord, I, I spent my week, you know, studying and, and uh, doing the work of the Lord. I, I've been preaching this week. I've been just, you know... I can't even confidence in anything I've done. You can't either. If I got to come to God in who I am and what I've done, that's when you come full of fear, full of doubts. And you should, because we know we can't be accepted. But if we come in the merits of Christ alone, 
will be accepted. Now you think of that. That's how precious and valuable the sacrifice of Christ is. You know, if we're honest, most of us, if you could travel back in time and see Solomon's temple, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I'd like to see that. And it would be an impressive building. It would be something to see. But do you know what? All these years later, here we sit, seeing Christ by faith in his word is immeasurably better than seeing Solomon's temple. How God's blessed us to be able to see Christ by faith, to be able to trust him. Then Solomon made gigantic pillars that held up the, the at least the roof over Solomon's porch, maybe the, in, in the building too, made these giant, giant uh, pillars. They're 73 feet high. Now you know those pillars are pictures of Christ, don't you? The Lord Jesus Christ holds up all of salvation. He holds it all up. He does it by himself. He upholds all of the gospel. He upholds everything we believe. Without Christ, everything we believe falls flat. Everything. He by himself upholds all of the purpose of God. The Father gave all of his purpose of redemption, all of his purpose for the world. He gave it to his Son, and his Son upholds it all. He upholds salvation so that his people can never perish. He holds them in his hand so they can never perish, so they can never be, be taken away from him. But again, Christ is so much better than the picture. I mean, I just wonder, how did, how did they build those, those, uh, those pillars 73 feet? How do they do that without cranes? How do they do that without power tools? How do they do? I mean, yeah, that'd be something to see. But Christ is so much better than the picture. You know what happened as between 650, 700 A.D.? You know what happened to those pillars? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar came and tore them down. He tore them down. And then some, some while later, Zerubbabel came. He rebuilt. I don't know what happened to his temple if somebody tore it down, but eventually Herod rebuilt the temple. That's the temple that our Lord walked in. About 70 A.D., the Romans came and obliterated the thing. I mean, they just obliterated it. Now, I've never been there, but I have seen pictures. There are a few stones left from Solomon's temple. Stones that Solomon laid. He, he had laid there. But they're among the ruins. They're among the ruins. Solomon's pillars came tumbling down. That's the picture. The salvation that Christ established for his people will never be torn down. Never. It'll never be in ruins. I mean, not one stone of it will be in ruins. Not one. If Christ has saved you, you will always be perfect. You'll always be complete. Now, I'm going to get to this in just a minute. But when you look at yourself, all you're going to see is sin. But you're still complete and perfect in Christ. And you'll never be in ruins. Never. Never be ashamed. Wouldn't you reckon those Jews were ashamed when they saw Nebuchadnezzar come and tear down this glorious temple? Oh, how they took pride in Solomon's temple and Nebuchadnezzar did away with it. Then they are proud of Herod's temple. I mean, the disciples told the Lord, look at this place. The Lord said, well, there's one greater than Solomon's come. 
Weren't they ashamed when the Romans came toward it? They never could rebuild it. If you believe in Christ, you'll never be ashamed because you'll never be found guilty. Ever. Then Solomon made candlesticks. I think he made ten of them. Those candlesticks are pictures of Christ. He's the light of the world. Now we preach Christ. And here's why. Because you only ever see, you only ever understand, you only ever believe the gospel in the light of who Christ is. In His light. The only way I ever see my sinfulness is by seeing the light of Christ. Until I see Christ, until I see His perfection, I think I'm pretty good. But not when I see Him. I've got to see myself in the light of who He is before I understand my sinfulness. The only way I can see who God is is in the light of Christ. Now, do you want to see God? Would anybody here like to see God? You want to know what God's like? You know how God operates? Tell you what to do. Look to Calvary. At Calvary, this is what you find out. God is holy. God is inflexibly just. He put his own son to death when his son was made sin. He wouldn't even spare his own son. But at Calvary, you also see God is merciful. God is gracious. God loves sinners. You and I can't imagine the depths of God's love, his mercy, and his grace for his people that would move him to slaughter his only begotten son so he could show mercy to the likes of us. That's grace. But it's got to be given in truth, doesn't it? God's justice must be satisfied first. See, the best place to see the character of God is at Calvary. I can see who God is in the light of Christ crucified. That's how we see who God is. And the only way I can see how God could save a sinner like me, it's in the light of Christ. Once I see Christ, oh, it's crystal clear. I see. I can only be righteous by the obedience of Christ. I can't obey the law. He has to obey it for me. It's obvious once I see him. Once I see Christ, it's obvious. Oh, the only way my sin can be paid for is the blood of the Son of God. He must shed his blood as a propitiation for my sin. Now I see. Now I see. Now you might wonder, do I see? Do I see? You might wonder, now, have I seen anything in the light of Christ? Or do I just know doctrine? Do I just know the right doctrine? Do I know the right words to say? Because especially for our young people who have been raised under the sound of the gospel, you never heard anything else. Mentally, you think this is true, don't you? But have you ever wondered, do I see this? Do I see in the light of Christ? Let me see if I can help you. I hope, I hope somebody's asking that question because I believe I got something to help you. If you see any reason in yourself that God would save you, are you a little better than somebody else? Or, or you, you've attended the right church, you, you've memorized the, the right memory verses, and you know what they mean, you know about a tulip, you know about all those things, you know. Is there something in you different from somebody else that would make God save you? Do you see that about yourself? If you do, you're blind. 
If that's what you think you see, you're still in complete darkness. But if you don't see any reason in yourself that God would be merciful to you, if you can't find any reason that God would save you other than Christ alone, grace alone, and mercy alone, then you see. You see. Let me show you that in John chapter 9. If you see that the only reason God would save you is the obedience of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, then you see. John 9. Verse 39. And Jesus says for judgment, I'm coming to this world, that they which see might not see. And they which, and, or that, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. This is what the Lord's telling them. He's come that those that can't see any goodness in themselves, they can't see any reason that God would save them, He came to make them see, to see Him, to see salvation's all in Him. And those which see, those which think that they see some goodness in them, I mean, that's what the Pharisees saw. They saw goodness in themselves. They obeyed the law. They, they paid their tithes. They, they came to all the feast days and the Sabbath days and did all those things, you know. They could see a reason why God would be merciful to them, why God would save them. Christ, I can't make those people blind. Judicial blindness so they can't see me. And do you know the Pharisees who were there listening understood exactly what the Lord was saying? Look at verse 40. And some of the Pharisees that were witching with him heard these words and said, are we blind also? They said, you're talking about us, aren't you? Jesus said unto them, if you are blind, you should have no sins. If you knew you were blind, you can't see anything in yourself good, you'd have no sin. I'd take it away. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin, your sin remaineth. That's what those candlesticks all represented. It's the light of Christ. If you see yourself in the light of Christ, your sin's taken away. Then, Solomon got down to brass tacks. Solomon built this whole building for this purpose. The brazen altar. The purpose, the business of Solomon's temple was to offer burnt offerings on that brazen altar. God can only be worshipped with a blood sacrifice. That sacrifice must be burnt under the fire of God's justice. That was the business of the brazen altar. That was the business of the tabernacle. And everything that went on at this altar, it's all pictures of Christ. Christ is the high priest who came and offered the sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice on the altar and Christ is the altar. And now what the writer of the Hebrews said, we have an altar. Now this altar was 35 feet by 35 feet by 17 and a half feet tall. It was made of solid brass, of hand breadth thick, it says. Now brass is an alloy. It's a combination of copper and zinc. Now that's a picture of the two natures of Christ. He's both God and man. It's the only way the sacrifice can put away sin. If the sacrifice is both God and man. Now brass is known for its strength. It had to stand up to high temperatures. I mean, 35 by 35. They fill that thing with wood and start a fire. It's hot. It's hot. 
That brass had to stand up to high temperatures. Well, that's a picture of Christ. He's the mighty one of God that God sent to accomplish the salvation of his people. Christ our Savior suffered all of the fire of God's wrath against the sin of his people without any hint of mercy. The Father never turned the temperature down any. He gave him the full heat, the full fire of his hatred against sin, poured it all out upon his Son. And in that sacrifice, the Lord Jesus didn't melt away. He didn't melt under the the fire of God's wrath. If he did, nobody could be saved. But in his strength, he withstood that fire of God's wrath and he endured it all until the fire went out. And the fire only went out. Not because the father was saying, okay, you can't take anymore. That's not why the fire went out. The fire went out because the sin which fueled the fire was gone. Put away by the sacrifice of Christ. And that altar stood on 12 oxen, three each facing each direction of the compass, north, south, east, and west. You know what that's a picture of? Christ came to save sinners from all over the world. Are you from the north, the south, the east, or the west? You're from one of them, aren't you? Christ came to save a people from all those directions. You fit in there? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He came to save sinners. He's the Savior that sinners can depend upon. Now, isn't it amazing to you that God put everything that he is in that one man so he could accomplish the salvation of his people? Solomon couldn't do it in that giant building. God put it all in one man. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. God made salvation easy to find. He put it all in one place. Now go to Christ, it's all in Him. And if you believe on Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. And if you believe on Him, you're complete. If you believe on Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, if you believe on Him, you're filled with Christ. Let me show you that in closing. Colossians chapter 2. If you're filled with Christ, you're complete in Christ, you can never perish because there's no reason that you would. Because Christ has made you perfect. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you're complete. You're complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. That's amazing, isn't it? A sinner complete in Him? Can you think of a better reason to run to Christ begging for mercy? That you'll be made complete in Him? I can't. I end like I started. Hope we're all singing that song Sean and Tara sung for us. In our heart. I mean in our heart. Meaning it. I'm coming. I'm coming. All right, let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious picture of Christ our Savior. And we thank you for the truth of who he is. And Father, I pray that you would take your word, that you'd 
Take this revelation of your darling son and reveal it to each heart here. Their hearts would be broken at the thought of who he is and what he has accomplished for his people. How low he stooped to accomplish the redemption of his people that we might be glorified together with him. Father, how we thank you. Father, I pray you take your word as it's been preached. Cause it to shine forth the glory of your Son. For it's in his name and his sake we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.